You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. Well, this morning, the title of my message is Following Jesus. And the title, the little subtitle I gave it, I don't really like it. And a better title for this message this morning would be Following Jesus in an Ever-Changing World. So that's what I'm going to go with. Um, Last time I shared, I I shared um, a message on the cost of following Jesus. That everything we do in life, there's a cost associated with it. There's consequences of our actions. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes indifferent. Sometimes there's good things that happen, bad things happen. And sometimes it just depends on your perspective about whether something is good or bad. But I'm going to share uh, quickly one of the key scriptures from my last, last message I shared uh, before I pray and move on. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Father, I just thank you this morning that you are God, and we don't have to be. God, I thank you that we can be your children. God, I thank you that you are a loving Father that guides us and directs us and loves us and provides for us and equips us for every good work that you would have us do. And so, God, I just thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are ever-present in our lives. And God, I pray that we would know this morning how much we desperately need you in our life. So, Father, I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Following Jesus in an ever-changing world. The world's changing pretty fast, isn't it? The rate at which technology is advancing, the rate at which information is doubling, is quite staggering. It was maybe 100 years ago that we were walking around, riding our horses to church, Then they came out with the steam engine. I don't think too many people took the steam engine to church, but for long treks, they would take the steam engine. Today we have the automobile. It wasn't very long ago that people used to huddle around their kitchen tables at candlelight, because that was their only option. And today, every single building and home, for the most part, has uh, electricity in it now. You see, most of these technological advances in our life um, are things that I would say have been for the better. You see, technology in and of itself is amoral. It doesn't have a morality, it's just a thing. This computer right here, it's just a computer. A car is just a car. But these things are instruments that can be used by people. And something doesn't become really good or bad until a person who has a will determines to use something for good or for evil. 
a car is an amazing thing. I, it took me from my house to this church this morning in like five minutes. If I had to walk, it would have taken a little longer. But I could also choose to get in that car and run into a crowd of people, killing them. It's not the car that's the issue. It's the person driving the car. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Hayward shared a message, or maybe it was last week, on the parable of the seed and the soils. And he, I'm just reiterating it quickly, that he was saying there's nothing wrong with the seed. The seed is the same seed every time. It's the word of God. What changes is the soil in which it lands. Some soil is, is ready. It's thick. It's healthy. It's ready to take that seed and grow its roots really deep of whatever plant seed it gets. But there's other soils that are hard, that are worked on, that have thistles and thorns in which the roots of that plant seed cannot take root. And those plants are very vulnerable, and it doesn't take very much to knock those plants right out. You see, in general, human achievement and technological advancement are largely a great thing until somebody decides to use it for evil. Which then this week, I was thinking about it. So you guys have been hearing more about car attacks, people driving cars into groups of people, and I've been thinking, God, what is it that's making people do these things? You know, what is it with the human being that determines whether we're going to do something good or something evil? Romans 1 gives a really great explanation for how life without God, without Christ, ultimately leads to death and destruction. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is a suppression of truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all things that he has made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God and his righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Apostle Paul in the book of Romans explains very eloquently what happens to the human race when we forsake God, when we choose to lay aside the principles of his word and ignore him and determine to be our own God, the own Lord of our own destiny. The Bible says, claiming to be wise, they became utter fools. 
Today we live in a country that is increasingly walking away from the principles in which it was established. And many of those principles were things that were established from the Judeo-Christian ethic, things from the Word of God. And the Word of God is, is very influential in the way that Western society has been shaped in our laws, in the moral fabric of our nations. And I love Canada. I've done a little bit of traveling. It's not hugely extensive, but I can't think of a country that I would rather live in than Canada. It's a pretty amazing country. And although we've made mistakes in the past, we're always working to try to remedy them to the best of our ability as a people. We're a nation that promotes freedom, justice, and human rights. And it's clear that the Christian Judeo ethic has shaped the nation in which we live. This made it one of the most desirable nations in the world for people from all over to come to. However, we continue to drift away from the moral absolutes of Scripture. And we seem to be operating as a nation and as a people and as a culture with a broken compass. We don't entirely know where North is. For example, the idea of human rights in the Judeo-Christian belief system that each man, woman, and child is created equal in the eyes of God, made in the image of God, we are intrinsically valuable. Because we're made in the image of God, we are something that's sacred, which is why we can't murder one another, which is why murder is a big thing to God, because when we kill another human being, we're killing something that literally is mirroring the image of God. Without God, what is the foundation for which we decide as a people whether someone should be entitled to rights or not? On what foundation? And if somebody challenges that notion and says one group should be entitled to rights and someone else not, on what foundation does that other worldview have to dispute it? Really? As people, where is it that we get our absolutes from? Where is it that we derive our notions of what is good and what is evil? Is this something that's completely subjective? Is this something that we determine for ourselves? Or is there actually a moral absolute, a universal principle that applies to all people everywhere because it comes from the nature of who God is and it's the character of God being applied in the world in which we live? There's a recent study held on leading on the leading American university campuses and it was asking students aged 18 to 26, how do you determine right from wrong? The most popular answer that these young people were giving was, well, you just kind of know. You kind of, you know, you get a gut check. You just kind of know when something is right or something is wrong. Something that was interesting when I was reading through and was talking about this, some of the statistics in the study it was talking about, it listed off the people that identified themselves as Christian. And what was interesting was the people, the young people that considered themselves to be Christians didn't really have a different answer than the people that were non-Christian. When asked, how do you determine in your life what's a good decision, what's a bad decision, what's good, what's evil? It was basically, I just, I just know. I just, when it feels good, I do it. 
what are the guiding principles of your life? Are you a person that's directed by the word of God more than the philosophies of our culture or mere human opinion? When determining if something is right or wrong, do you consult people? Do you consult the word of God or do you just decide for yourself what is good and what is evil? You see, as the church, we need to be aware of the changing landscape of our culture and remember what our guiding authority is, that it has to be the person of Jesus Christ. It has to be the word of God. We live in a society that believes that all religions are essentially the same. Have you heard that? All religions are essentially the same. They're all about love and compassion. The funny thing is they only differ on issues of heaven, hell, morality, God, the nature of man, the nature of God. Is there a purpose in life? Just those few things. But yeah, they're all the same. As we continue to change as a culture, and we are exposed to new ideologies and technologies and ways of thinking, we need to remain steadfast in the faith, remembering that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16 to 17. The rate of growth of information in today's world is staggering. I recently read an article by David Russell Schilling for Industry Tap, where he explained a theory by Buckminster Fuller's knowledge doubling curve theory. And uh, basically, what the idea is that he was trying to measure how much human knowledge and information is doubling over time. And what he began to, to see was that in the early 1900s, human knowledge was doubling approximately every 100 years. By the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling approximately every 25 years by his estimation. Today, things are not quite as simple because knowledge has different types of knowledge and uh, they grow at different rates. But on average, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. They say that uh, nanotechnology is doubling every two years and clinical knowledge every 18 months. Some of, these, some of this chart thing is a little bit old, so I'm sure that some of the stats might be a little different. But according to IBM, they said that with the build-out of the internet, that they're expecting information to double every 12 hours. It's pretty amazing how much information we have accessible to us every day. Who here has a smartphone? Who here has a smartphone in their pocket right now? The amount of technology that is in your pocket right this moment what it's capable of doing is probably beyond what a computer like almost the size of this building could have done 50 years ago. And we have it in the palm of our hand. Our smartphones have far more computing power than it took to send man to the moon. Likely by the time you even purchased your phone, you realized that your phone was already out of date and uh, they're already advertising new ones. Isn't that frustrating? Is there anybody in here that likes to keep up with technology? Anybody in here that like that as soon as a new iPhone comes out, you just have to buy it? Is there anybody that's willing to admit that that's them? Come on, I know you're in here. I know you're in here. 
It's exciting when there's something new, when there's something better, we want it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's exciting to get a new phone. But despite all the information that we have, our society seems to become increasingly more spiritually emaciated. It's as if we're suffering from information overload. And the problem is when we have access to so much information, how do we know what information is important and which information isn't? How do we determine what information is correct and what isn't? If anyone's ever been in university, you know that Wikipedia is not a source by which you can cite on a paper. Because anybody can just go on Wikipedia and write some information or change that information. And it's, it's not a good leading source. And so that's the problem with the internet that we're seeing more and more today, is that we see information, but one, we don't even know if it's accurate, and two, there's just so much of it. How do we know what to read, what not to read? 2 Timothy 3.7, Apostle Paul writes about a people who are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. We have access to so much information on so many different platforms, church, and yet we seem to miss the mark so often today on what's truly important. The moral fabric of our society seems to be ripping away and it's being repaired with faulty assumptions surrounding truth, reality, ethics, justice, and governance. We live in a society that's lost sight of anything that resembles biblical truth as its guiding authority. It's been replaced by relativism and subjective reasoning. More and more, people are being self-governed by their feelings more than that which they know to be true. Every day we're exposed to new ideas. It's the 21st century. And as we move away from biblical truth as the underlying assumption as a society for the way that we view and interact with the world, we have to be aware of this because it creeps in to our life as well as Christians. That if our life is not continually being renewed by scripture, if our mind is not being renewed, and we're not filtering out the good from the garbage, then we could have some really warped ideas. Some that are based in truth, but that are false. In my original title, when I used the word postmodern Canada, what I was attempting to describe was a society that no longer holds onto moral absolutes. We seem to be moving in the direction of a society where there's no true right or wrong, the moral standard that's completely objective. Morality is simply something that society determines for itself. It seems as though truth and morals and ethics are something being viewed as a social construct engineered by people of a society and agreed upon by those members. And to agree to this most postmodern philosophy, this way of thinking, is to agree that there's no absolute truth. And by default, you're saying that all truth is relative. But the reality is none of us can live a relativist life. Our whole life, our whole existence is based on some form of, of absolute objective thought and reasoning. Would you get in your car, get out on the highway driving 100 kilometers an hour if your brake pedals may or may not work every time you got in the vehicle? I wouldn't. 
But we know if we just went to the mechanic and the mechanic set up those brakes properly, if the brake pads are operating properly, they're, they're healthy brake pads, and everything is working and set up properly, when we apply our foot to the brake, our car should stop. Let us not be like those who are always learning and failing to come to the knowledge of the truth. For example, God's word. We can read God's word as a book, like any other book, to try to garner information. But the problem is that is not what the Bible is intended for. The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, the Bible can't be taught in the same way as a novel would in an English literacy class. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. You see, it's great to learn. I love to learn. I like to read. I like to read books of all sorts of different subject matters from finances to personal development and psychology. Growing up, I used to love watching Discovery Channel, and I just loved watching the nature shows and figuring out how things work. I found it really fascinating. There used to be a show, I don't know if it's still on TV or not. Maybe you could help me. It's called How It's Made. Yeah, it's still on TV. Have you guys seen that show? Where they take just common everyday items, like maybe this, this Mac here, and they'd show you how they build it from start to finish with the raw material to the finished product. It's so fascinating. I love watching that show. I learn something new every time. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with watching these shows or or reading these books. But as followers of Jesus, people who have committed ourselves to Christ, we must always remember the source of true knowledge. And first and foremost, be students of God's word and let that be the filter by which we approach the world. If we're going to grow spiritually and mature spiritually, we need to be people that are grounded in the word of God. Colossians 2.8 says, Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae and Laodicea. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than that according to Christ. You see, it's very likely in the church at this time, it was a brand new church. Paul did not know most of the people in the church. He did not found these churches. And so he was writing to them primarily to remind them about the centrality of Christ. But my guess is that this church was starting to incorporate aspects of their culture, philosophies from the community around them into the church and intermingling them with Christian doctrine. And Paul here is warning them not to be held captive through philosophy and empty deceptions according to men, according to principles that are not according to God's word. The Bible says in Proverbs 1.7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you are instructed, overflowing with gratitude. Colossians 2.6-7. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, continue to live in obedience to him. Let your roots grow down deep into him, draw nourishment from him, so that you will grow in faith, be strong and vigorous in the truth you were taught. Let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all 
he has done. You see, the Christian life, it's a, it's a journey of faith from start to finish. The spirit-filled life is a life of faith. Just think about it for a moment. What was it that brought you to God in the first place, that made you right before God? Was it that you were just such an outstanding person that God just couldn't stay away? Was it by our ability to perform and be, be morally good that God picked us out of the crowd and said, you're my guy? No. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, by no works of our own, lest any of us should boast. It's a gift from God. We put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ because he is the only one who can forgive us of our sin. He is the only Savior. He is the final sacrifice for our sins and the only way that we can truly be reconciled to God. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. Church, we are be to firmly rooted and built up and established in faith and to walk in him. And the Christian life is not static. We need to always be growing. And it's not meant to be about that exclusive moment where you came to the Lord and asked Jesus to come into your heart. That that is a starting point. That each of us that has come to that place and said, Lord, I need you in my life and received him can now call him Savior. And now from that moment on, the rest of our life, we're pursuing him as the Lord of our life, surrendering our life to him every day. You see, the Christian experience is a continual walk with God in relationship with him, where he showers us with his love and revelation of who he is. Colossians 2.2 says, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. May they be complete in the confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. God's plan, his mysterious plan, was himself. That he was going to come into humanity, into our world, die on a cross so we can be restored back into relationship with him. My time is dwindling away. Colossians 2, 6, 7, the last line there that I underlined there. Overflowing with gratitude. Church, do you feel like most of your life you are overflowing with gratitude? Do we live as a people who are overflowing with thankfulness and gratitude? Or do we like to set our eyes on the, the things that trouble us? Do we like to think about the things that are horrible in our life? It's pretty hard not to if you watch the news. It's a pretty negative thing. I get stuck, a minute, stuck up in that sometimes. But what we expose ourselves to will shape the way we think. If you start finding that you read things, watch certain things, and it starts to negatively affect your thought life, we have to be intentional about what we allow into our life. And sometimes we might have to put some stuff aside and focus on something, something else. But we should be so thankful. We are people that have been delivered, 
that God has saved us from the pit of hell and we have Jesus in our life. We should be the most thankful people ever. But I know that sometimes we get stuck in a rut. Do you ever feel like you get stuck in a spiritual rut? Like you're just walking through the motions of going to church, doing spiritual things, praying, but somehow it's lost some of its luster, it's lost some of its significance and importance in your life? I've shared the story before, but I'm just going to reiterate it quickly. A few years ago, two summers ago, Rhea and I were finding that when we come together and have a meal, I would say a really quick, half-hearted prayer. And we found that it had really began to lose its significance and its, its value to us. And so we began to discuss, why, are, why do we even pray in the first place? Like, if we're going to say this really half-hearted prayer, is it even worth praying before a meal? And Rhea went and she took, what do you call them, do you paint on? A canvas, thank you. She went and bought a canvas, and she painted on the canvas a scripture from Acts 2 that said, they met in their homes and broke bread together with glad and sincere, glad and sincere hearts. And what we decided to do for that summer was to quickly thank God before we ate and to just take a moment and think about things that we were grateful for. Think about what God was doing in our life, what he has done in our life, and what we're hoping for. And to just, out loud, say a couple things that we were grateful for. It was almost like Thanksgiving. And just that one act of just reevaluating what we're doing and why we're doing it. We were able to bring so much more power and significance into that prayer before the meal. Church, let's not do things for the sake of doing it. Sometimes we go through the motions of the spiritual life, praying, reading the word, going to church, and we forget why we do them. But most importantly, we forget who we're doing it for. We come to church first and foremost to praise and worship God. And through that, the secondary result, the benefit of that to us is that God fills us. God's spirit restores us and lifts us up. So this morning, the church, this morning, I just wanted to encourage you, if you're feeling a little bit spiritually dry, if you're feeling a little bit disconnected, don't stop coming to church. Don't stop doing the things you're doing, but reevaluate what you're doing, why you're doing it, and who you're doing it for. Are you doing it for yourself? Are you doing it for your wife? Are you doing it for your family and your kids? Or are you doing it for God? Because ultimately, that which we do for God is what's most important. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. You see, it's all about Christ. Everything we do as the church, it's about him. Last week, David Rich shared a really nice message about the missions field in Quebec. And uh, he shared about what they're doing in Montreal. And he shared about the gospel narrative. He shared the story from creation through the finished work on the cross. And he spoke about the importance of being fluent in the gospel. And it's a great reminder for us that the gospel has to be central in all we do. That everything that we do as followers of Christ, that it ultimately is all about him. 
first and foremost. You see, there's no comparison to Christ. He stands alone as a person in history. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We serve a mighty God. A God that before he placed a single star in the sky in creation, he knew the exact moment that he was going to enter our world in the flesh, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. He knew that exact moment, and he knew what he was going to have to do. And his, in his great love, he did it anyhow. Church, we need to continue to pray for spiritual discernment and be aware of the things that are influencing our life and to first and foremost set our eyes on Jesus and remember the gospel message every single day. We need to keep running the race with endurance to the end. And when you feel weary, when you're tired, lean into him. Let God be your strength. Don't give up. For when you are weak, he is strong. If you're discouraged here this morning, would you find a brother or sister from this body and set up a coffee date? Tell them what's going on in your life. As the church, we're here to support one another, one another to love one another, to live in community, to lift up and to encourage one another to run the race with love. The Bible says that they will know us by our love for one another. We have to be people that are living out of a place of love all the time, out of a place of thankfulness and gratitude, not out of religious obligation. And if you have kids in this room, they see it. If you're one person at home and somebody else, when you walk in here on a Sunday morning, they see it. There's nothing that spoils the testimony of a Christian life more than living a double life. But if we are truly focused on Jesus, if he is truly the focus of our life, if we will truly lay down our selfish ambition, pick up our cross and follow him with all that we have, I don't think you can live a double life. Because there's, the only life you have is that which you surrender to him. And that's the goal. It's to not lose yourself, in the, lose yourself, but God empowers you to find yourself. Because who we think we are in our sinful state is not really who we are. Our identity is truly in who God created us to be. And we find out who that person is through surrender through walking in relationship with him, and him affirming through the spirit who we are, through his word, confirming through his word who we are. The worship team can come up, if they would. 
You see, the Christian walk was never one to be something that we do alone. We need to do it in community. I don't have my phone on me. Does somebody have a phone in their pocket? Do you have your phone on you, Karina? No? You have your phone, Caleb? Wonderful. Ooh, it's broken. I'm not surprised at all. Um, I was looking at my phone this week, and I was just thinking about how vitally important this little thing has become to our lives. Have any of you ever woken up in the morning and got to work and realized you forgot your phone at home? Have any of you lost your phone? Do you remember how it felt when you realized you didn't have your phone on you? Did you feel a lot of stress? Did you feel like, how am I going to get through the rest of this day? Did you feel a desperate need to go search for your phone and go find what was lost? It's an amazing thing, the power and the influence these things have over our life. And I was reflecting on that, because I've lost my phone before too, and I have my, I, my iPhone finder, and I've gone and I've found my phone, and it's such a relief when you find it, and you don't have to go buy a new one. But I would bet that most of us in this room, if we truly lost our phone, we had no idea where it was, it went missing, and we couldn't find it, I don't even know if we'd go two days before having a new phone. Is that important? But I would wonder how long we could not connect with our creator before it would start to ruin our day. How often do you wake up and leave your God at home? And how long would it take before it starts to impact your life? where you start to feel that angst that something's not right, that you begin to feel disconnected, you begin to feel lost without him. A day, two days, three days, a week, a month, 40 years, In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit, what does that mean? The scripture sometimes throws people to think, shouldn't I be rich in spirit? I want to be rich in the spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God of God. This is the beginning of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first thing that Jesus says at the beginning of his teaching. Let me put it, phrase it in a different way. Blessed are those who acknowledge their need for God, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who acknowledge their desperate need for God. For theirs is the kingdom. We 
We sing a song here sometimes called, Lord, I Need You. And it goes, oh, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. My prayer for every one of us this morning is this, that we would receive the revelation from God how much we desperately need him, how much we need to depend on him so that we can be poor in spirit so that the kingdom of heaven can be ours. He said it. Like always, if you need prayer, this altar is always open to you. If you need to spend some time with God this morning, this altar is always open. If you desperately need God this morning, this altar is open. If you don't know that you desperately need God this morning, this altar is open. And may that revelation that can only come from God through the Spirit. May that seed take hold in your heart. And I pray this morning that this morning your hearts would be good soil. That his word and this truth of how much we need him would go deep. That we would be built up in faith, that we would be firmly rooted and deeply established in him. Father, I thank you this morning for who you are. Lord, I thank you, God, that you are God, a holy God. God, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would know how much we desperately need you. God, fill us with the knowledge of your will for every area of our life in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And God, may we, like David, be men and women after your heart. Lord, may we be firmly rooted and established in you with faith like Abraham, trusting in you and your word always. Regardless of our circumstances, God, may we remain grateful and humble and thankful for all you've done in our life and all you continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.